My name is Brant Kiskerno, and I'm one of the elders here at Riverstone Church. It's a joy to serve as an elder and bring the word to us this morning. If you're new with us, we've been studying through the book of First Peter. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. If you do not have a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, you can keep this Bible, take it home, it's yours. We preach through books of the Bible here. We do that because we think it's biblical and because we also believe that the Bible is truly God's word. When we read the Bible, we're hearing from God. And the Bible, the gospel, is life-giving and it's life-transforming. It changes our life. Your life is about to change. That's the slogan that was on my wife's coffee cup this morning. Do you know a, a, a foodie? Do you know what a foodie is? A foodie is someone who loves good food, good restaurants. And if you talk to them, they might say that meal was transforming or that cup of coffee was life-changing. I had an experience like this myself. Uh, my wife and I were invited over to the couple's house whose husband was going to be doing the music for our wedding. And after dinner, like most hosts do, he asked us if we wanted some coffee. I thought I was a coffee connoisseur because I liked iced vanilla lattes from Starbucks. And he brings over this, this cup of coffee. It's black. There's no cream, no sugar. I'm too embarrassed to ask for cream and sugar, so I drink it. And after a few sips, I'm thinking to myself, what is this? I've never tasted anything like this before in my life. So I asked him about it, and he told me that he roasts his own coffee. I had no idea what that was. Roasting your own coffee is essentially you buy raw coffee beans that are small and green, and you roast them yourself through heat. That moment was life-changing for me. I I've been roasting my own coffee for the last eight years. <laughs> to this day, at night, I will go to bed and tell my wife, I can't wait to have a cup of coffee tomorrow morning. <laughs> it's, it's just a different experience. It was, in a small way, life-changing for me. But that's what happens when we come to the Bible. The gospel is life-changing. Peter's readers experience this. We've learned that they've been born again by the rich mercy of God. They've been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. They have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And now we see that they were also called to pursue holiness. But how does that work? How does God work to give us life? How does he work to make us born again? How do we pursue holiness, and what does it look like in our lives as Christians? And we're going to see more of that in our text this morning. We're going to be studying 1 Peter 1, verses 22 to chapter 2, verse 3. I'm going to read the text, and then we'll pray. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. 
God's word to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage before us. We believe that you are speaking through this passage. As we study it together this morning, may your spirit open our eyes and our hearts to bring about life in those who do not yet know you, to sanctify us, to make us more like Jesus. Let us see and taste your kindness through your word this morning that we would crave it as a church family and we would walk in love. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, last week, if you remember, uh, Brian took us through the, the passage, and he, uh, and he mentioned that there were three imperatives in the passage. And by way of a reminder, he said that an imperative is a command. It's when we're called to do something. This week, we're going to see some more imperatives, but we're also going to see what we call indicatives. An indicative is something that is true of us. It's something that's already been accomplished. Now, this is important because as we study the Bible and we grow in our understanding of the Bible, we start to see that any time we're commanded to do something, we're given an imperative, it's always based on the foundation of something that is true of us, an indicative. For example, several months ago as a church, we studied the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, we read that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. The imperative is work out your own salvation. That is what they're being commanded, called to do. The indicative is God is at work in you. That is true for every one of us who is a follower of Jesus. God is at work in us, period. You could rephrase it saying, since God is at work in you, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is how the gospel works. It's the difference between saying, do good works and you will be saved, versus you're saved in order to do good works. We need to understand this or we fall into this trap of trying to earn our way and our righteousness before God. So Peter starts our passage this morning with this phrase, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls. What does he mean? Is their obedience to God's law purifying their souls, making them right with God? I don't think that's what he means. This is our first indicative this morning. He's telling his readers their souls have been purified. Notice the connecting word he starts with, sense. That brings us back to what we read last week. And at the end of last week's passage, we read that they were redeemed by the blood of Jesus, who came, Jesus came into the world, and God raised him from the dead, so their faith and hope are in God. Since you have an obedience to the truth, Peter is calling their act of faith an act of obedience. Since you have put your faith in Jesus, and the truth that they believed was the gospel, what Jesus had done for them, how he died on the cross for their sins, and how God gloriously raised him from the dead so they have a living hope. We're going to see this later on throughout the letter where, where Peter kind of synonymously uses disobedience and unbelief. He characterizes unbelievers as being disobedient to the word. So these believers, he says, have purified their souls. This word purification means to be clean or holy, to be washed. When we studied Nehemiah, 
after they were rebuilding the gates and the walls, we read that they purified the, le- the, the priests, the Levites, all the people, the gates and the walls. Everything was purified. But Christ has come, and he brings true, real purification for our souls. Our sins have been washed away. This is true of all of us right here in this room who know Jesus. Our souls have been purified because we trusted in Jesus, because of what he has done. He goes on to explain a little bit further what this means with our second indicative. He says that they've been born again. They've been given new life. They've had a second birth. Jesus said, you must, you must be born again to inherit the kingdom of God. We've all had a natural birth. Everyone who's living right now has come to life through their mother's womb. But that does not guarantee salvation. That doesn't give salvation at all. In fact, it's the opposite. We come into this world, and the scripture teaches us that we're born in union with Adam. We are in union with his sin and his death, and we need new life. We need to be born again. How have they been born again? What was the work? If you recall in verse 3 of chapter 1, when Jeremy was taking us through that passage, we read that it's God who causes us to be born again because of his rich mercy. In our text this morning, we see a little bit more detail in that. We're born again through the imperishable seed, the word of God. So God causes us to be born again through the gospel, the word. God works through the word, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he causes us to have new life. What does this look like? Well, think about your own personal testimony. How did you come to faith in Jesus? Someone told you about the gospel. You heard it at church, in a small group, over coffee with a, a friend or coworker. Somebody took the time to tell you that Jesus died for your sins, that he rose again, and if you trust in him, you will have eternal life. And God worked and gave you life. My own experience, I grew up in the church, and I heard the gospel at a young age. I'm not entirely sure when I I was born again, though. Uh, I made a profession of faith at a young age and was baptized, but my life showed no evidence of knowing Jesus. And I got to a point in my life where I was really wrestling with, am I going to heaven? I knew, I heard that Jesus died for my sins, but I knew the way I was living, something was off. And I remember distinctly one day reading 1 Corinthians 6, and Paul lists off these names of sins, those who are greedy, drunkards, sexually immoral, will not, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. What am I going to do? This is my life. If this is true, I'm going to hell. Then he he goes on and he says this, and such were some of you, but you were washed, cleansed, purified. You were sanctified, 
you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And the lights went on. I was given new life. In that moment, I understood that I could be forgiven because of Jesus, and he changes me. I understood what it meant to be forgiven and washed and made right with God. And it wasn't something I did. I had no power to do that, no power to change. But in that moment, my life changed. Everything changed about me. God was working. Now, my testimony is not prescriptive, meaning it doesn't always have to happen that exact way, but it's descriptive. But what's true of us, everyone who is a believer in Jesus, we've been born again through the seed of the gospel, an imperishable seed. Notice how Peter describes the word of God, the gospel. He uses this analogy of a seed, and he calls it not perishable, but imperishable. We understand this. We go to the grocery store. We talk about perishable foods and imperishable foods. You leave strawberries in the fridge for a week, you know what's going to happen. They're going to get moldy. Maybe some of you are preparing for the zombie apocalypse and you buy imperishable food that you can keep in your cabinets that lasts for 10, 20, 30 years. But even then, that food is not truly imperishable. It can't last forever. It will go bad. But not the gospel. Think about it. We're here 2,000 plus years after the death of Christ and his resurrection and we're still preaching the gospel Jesus is still being believed on for the forgiveness and remission of sins. The gospel is still going out. Peter validates his statement by quoting Isaiah 40, verses 6 and 8. He says that all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. He's contrasting the temporary nature of our flesh with the enduring word of God. Now, Isaiah was writing to a people who were going to be exiled. They were living lives of rebellion against God. And Isaiah comes and he's telling them, God is going to bring judgment. You are going off into exile. Then they get to Isaiah 40 and God makes a promise. He's going to send the messenger. The Lord is going to come. And as these people are going to be going off into exile, facing death, persecution, all sorts of suffering, they know the flesh is like grass. It's, it's going to blow away. It's going to be here today and gone tomorrow. But God's word, his word is imperishable. And Peter goes on after this quote, and he says, and this word, which was, this is the word that was preached to you. That word preached is the same root of the word which we get evangelize. The ESV translates it that this word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter's telling his readers that what Isaiah promised has come to fulfillment in Jesus. The gospel is an imperishable seed. From the first promise made to Adam and Eve to the garden, that God would send a seed who would crush the head of the serpent. To Abraham, whose offspring would be the heir who would come. To David, whose descendant would sit on the throne forever. 
to Isaiah prophesying about the coming suffering servant who would redeem the people of the Lord, to being fulfilled in Jesus in his death and resurrection, proclaimed on by the apostles, and even to this day, the gospel is an imperishable seed. It cannot be stomped out, and it gives eternal life. And we need to know this. Remember, Peter's readers, they're in exile. They're being persecuted. What they need to be reminded of in facing death is they've been born again. They have eternal life. Though their flesh may perish, they have a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. When the world around us is crumbling, when we are facing death, some of us are in this room facing cancer. Some of us are, are right now grieving the loss of loved ones. And we all feel it, right? I don't feel the same way I did 10 years ago. I've fallen over the baby gate a few times. It takes a while to recover. It's not easy. I feel that my flesh is perishing. And we need to know that we've been born again. We have a living hope through the imperishable word of God. This is true of all of us. These are the indicatives. We've been born again. Our souls have been cleansed, purified because of Jesus. And this has happened through the word of God. It's happened by the powerful word of God. And there's a word for those of you here who might not know Jesus. Your life is perishing. Everybody's born and everybody dies. As Brian said, wah, wah, right? They say death and taxes, two certainties in life. We are all on the road to death. But the gospel can give you life today. If you don't know Jesus, believe in him. Trust that he died for your sins and he rose again and the spirit will give you life, eternal life, a living hope because of what he's done for you. But what effect does the gospel have? What do these indicatives lead to? What do these truths about us result in? Salvation is all-encompassing, meaning we've been forgiven, we've been given the gift of the righteousness of Jesus, We've been delivered from God's wrath and all these glorious truths, but salvation is more. We've been saved to become more like Jesus, as Paul told the Romans. We've been predestined to be conformed to his image. And Peter tells us here that they've been saved to fervently love one another. That's our first imperative. Fervently love one another. Those who are born again walk in love. He's calling them to live out what they've been saved to do. He said, you've been saved, your souls have been cleansed for a sincere brotherly love, so love one another. Act out what you've been called to do. The writer uh, John, in the first, his first letter, 1 John, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love 
does not know God because God is love. Those are some challenging words. Anyone who is born of God loves. If you don't love, you have not been born of God. Now, he's not expecting perfection, but what he's telling us is those who are born again, they love, they walk in love. I think what Peter's doing here is he's giving us a picture of what holiness looks like, right? Last, last week, we were called to be holy because God is holy. What does that look like? When you think of someone who's holy, what comes to mind? Is it knowing all the right Christian doctrine, speaking all the right Christian jargon, looking like they have it all together on the outside. The truth is you can know all the right things, you can say all the right things, but if you're not loving, you're not holy. We understand this. We, when we see someone who, who's really loving, gentle, tender, kind, they really reflect Jesus, there's just something different about them. And we see it, we understand it, we, we, we grasp onto it. And believers are to be marked by love. Jesus said, you will be known by your love. The world will know you by your love. And in the context of our passage this morning, it's love within the church. It's love within the community of believers. We're called to love one another. When he says they're, called, they're, they're saved for a sincere brotherly love, he uses the word Philadelphia. We are from the city of brotherly love. Philadelphia sports fans love their teams no matter what. Eagles lost, Phillies lost, Sixers lost, bad giraffe picks, but the fans still show up. They still love their teams. It's a brotherly love, a family love. The church, as Jeremy told us this morning, is a family. We are a family. And we are to have a brotherly love for each other like we are family. We understand that this love is hard. It doesn't come naturally to us. But we're called to eagerly seek it, to work it out in our lives. It's easy to think you're a loving person when you're alone. Get close to somebody and you'll realize how hard it is to love. It's like marriage, right? Before you get married, when you're engaged, you think you have no problems, everything's good. No arguments, no issues. You get married, you move in, things change. You find out your spouse is messy. Maybe uh, they put the ketchup bottle in the fridge instead of the cabinet. That was real for me and my wife. I never understood why they put the ketchup bottle in the cabinet, not in the fridge. But the point is, friction starts even over small things, right? When we live in community as a church, when we get in small groups, involved in church ministry, friction can start. It happens, but we're called to seek love. What does that mean? It means we forgive each other when we wrong each other. It means we're patient Love is patient, kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It does not seek evil. We seek the best in others. We think the best of one another, not the worst. We don't jump to conclusions. 
We build each other up. I felt very loved this past week. While uh, Austin was out on his sabbatical, he sent me a message earlier in the week, said that he was praying for me for this week. And I was, for whatever reason, just feeling very intimidated for my sermon. And Austin just built me up. I felt so loved in that moment. And I told him that. I said, Austin, I feel the love of Christ just emulating from you right now via text, just building me up with his words. We're called to have this kind of love for each other because we're a family. Now, what's interesting is he's writing this to exiles. In your exile, don't seek to get free. Don't seek something that's easier. Love one another. As you have a living hope, I'm calling you to holiness and to walk in love. Imagine how hard it would have been for them to love. We know when we're suffering, it's easy to turn inward, right? It's easy to not rely on others. It's easy to kind of seclude ourselves. But he's calling them, in your persecution, walk in love. Their faith, we learned, it's being genuinely tested. The genuineness of their faith is being tested. And the mark of a believer is love. So Peter's calling them to live out their love. So their souls have been purified. They've been born again in order to love. So the first thing we see this morning is that the gospel is the seed that saves us to love. The gospel is the seed that saves us to love. Now, when we look at commands, there's always a positive and negative aspect of a command, right? For example, God told Adam and Eve they could eat freely of any tree in the garden. That's a positive command. Go and enjoy whatever you want, but don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the negative aspect of the command. And as we move on into our passage this morning in the beginning of chapter 2, we read that they're to put aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. These are attitudes that are the opposite of love. When's the last time you heard someone being slandered and thought, that was really loving, that was a nice thing to do, right? Now, let's, let's go through these terms and define them to understand why Peter is mentioning them. What, what's so bad about these? Malice. Malice is wickedness and evil in the broadest sense, a mean-spiritedness with potentially an intent to harm somebody. Deceit, to trick or to fraud somebody. You know, we're going to be heading into the political ad season. Don't you just love those ads that come on TV? And it plays about a 10-second snippet of one of the candidate's words. And President Biden would never say. Real deep voice, right? They're being deceptive. They're not telling the whole story. Something's left out, right? They take up one snippet of their speech and leave it out. It's deceit. Or perhaps your wife asks you how much you spent at the golf course. Instead of saying $100, you say $80 because it sounds better. You're trying to deceive. You're trying to, to, to shade the truth. Hypocrisy is like wearing a mask. It's insincere. It's the difference between what you believe and how you live. It's coming to church on Sunday, acting like you have it all together, 
And it's living a completely different way Saturday through, Monday through Saturday. Hypocrisy. It's insincerity, not real. Envy. It's like jealousy. It's wanting what someone else has. You're envious of another person's position, looks, wealth. You could be envious of another person's spiritual gifts. Their position in the church. How the Lord is using that person for his glory. And then slander, evil speech, defaming somebody's character, saying something about someone so they think less of that person. Can you believe what the pastor said? Can you believe the decision he made? It doesn't take long to be on social media to scroll through and see what slander looks like. All of these things are inconsistent with being born again. We are to put them off like old clothes. One commentator noted, the sins that Peter names are not the gross vices of paganism, but community-destroying vices, so often tolerated by the church. I think I would agree with him, right? These are sins that, that we don't often talk about or mention. This is why when we bring in new members, a few times Austin has made a plea about slander and gossip. We have a responsibility to not live like that and to speak up when we see it. This happens in the church and it's real. I experienced this myself in a rather shameful way. I grew up, uh, as I mentioned earlier, going to church, and as I uh, got into my early 20s, I was asked to, to help lead the youth group, and I started getting more involved. I had some opportunities to teach and preach, and uh, pride just started creeping in my heart, and I had some differences of, of opinions, differences of theology with the pastor, uh, difference of ministry philosophy, and I found myself at one point talking to people about it in the church. If I was the pastor, I would do this. We should be doing it this way. I was blinded by it. And by God's grace, the Spirit convicted of me, convicted me of my sin. I met with the pastor, confessed my sins to him, and he lovingly forgave me. We're very close. But that was destructive. It was evil. And if you're here today and you're convicted by the Spirit as we have gone through this list, I encourage you, brother and sister, come to the Lord and receive fresh forgiveness and then be reconciled to your brother or sister. Confess your sins. It's loving for us to confess our sins to each other. That's one way we can walk in love together is by confessing our sins. So those who are born again put off these ways, but then we're commanded again to do something. We have another imperative. We are to crave the milk of the word, Peter says. We're to crave the milk of God's word. He uses this analogy like a newborn baby. Newborn babies crave milk. They want it. My wife and I, are, our, our youngest son, Ezra, just turned one, and he was nursing for the first year of his life. You know when that baby wants milk, and he's not going to be happy until he gets his milk. He craves it. 
He wants it. He satisfies it. And that is the believer's attitude. Those who have been those who have experienced the imperishable seed of the gospel crave more gospel. They crave God's word. It's an interesting parallel, isn't it? They're to be like newborn babies craving God's word, and yet they're to grow in salvation. They're to mature. Peter's not saying they're not to move on to deeper truths or they're not to grow. But this is written to all Christians. He's not writing this command to just new Christians. New Christians, you crave the word. If you've been a Christian for 20 years, you're good. All Christians, like newborn babies, crave the pure milk of God's word. We've been born again by it. How can we not want more of it? And why are they to crave it? Because it's how they grow, so that they will grow in respect to salvation. Now, when we talk about salvation, the Bible uses tenses. We have been saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved. And because we're being saved and we have not yet died and gone to heaven to be with Jesus, we're to grow And we grow through the word of God. Just like the seed has given us life, that same seed grows us. It's the word that is working in us. God spoke in the beginning and it was created. God's word is powerful. And when we read the Bible, we are coming to the very word of God. In fact, craving the word is how we put these ways off and walk in love. It's as we crave this milk and we grow that we put off these vices, we put off malice, deceit, slander, and we grow. What does it look like to crave the word? Now, I want to be careful here because believers are to crave the word. It's natural for us to crave what what has first given us life. But I know it can be a struggle for many. So what does it look like? How can we crave the word? Well, one, we could start by craving the word together in community. Think about how how do you prepare to come to church on Sunday? How do you prepare to hear God's word? We could pray for each other. We could pray for the pastor that the Lord would work, that we're coming to hear from the word of God. Grab a study Bible. Perhaps you're saying, I don't don't know where to start. Grab a good study Bible. You know, one thing uh, that's too tempting for us is we say, I'll start when I'm ready. I'll start when I feel like it. Well, when are you going to feel like it? If God's word is the power that works, start reading it, and you will start craving it prayerfully read through the Bible. I would encourage all of us to start by reading Psalm 119. It's all about the word of God. And as you read it, pray, Lord, let this be me. Work this kind of heart in me. Let me delight in your commands as much as in all riches. Let me love your word more than anything. God will produce this craving in us as we seek him. It's like going to the gym, right? 
I used to go to the gym, uh, used to, uh, right? There would be many days where I didn't want to go. But I knew if I didn't, I would, not, I would lose my strength, my endurance, my stamina. So even if I didn't want to be there, I still went and did it. Even the times we don't want to read our Bibles, we come on our knees. Lord, I don't want to read right now, but I need your help. I need you. I want to taste your kindness that saved me. I want to be reminded of who you are and what you've done for me and seek him. And he goes on to say with this last indicative this morning, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Now that could actually be translated since you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. It's true of them. They've tasted God's kindness. How? Through his word. The word that made them born again. The word where they heard how Jesus died for them and rose again. The word that has given them a living hope. They have tasted the kindness of God. Notice that connection there between crave and taste. I still crave that cup of coffee every, every morning. I tasted it and I crave it. We've tasted God's kindness, brothers and sisters. We're to crave it. Notice his flow of thought here as we, as we come to conclusion. He's telling his readers, his exiled, persecuted readers, they're suffering, and he reminds them who they are. They have tasted the kindness of God through his word. They've been born again. Their souls have been washed and made clean. And because of that, they're to crave his word and walk in love. That is true of us, brothers and sisters. That's our big idea for us this morning. The gospel is the seed that saves us, and it's the milk that grows us to love. All of us in here who know Jesus, we've tasted his kindness. We've been born again. Know that. You have been born again by an imperishable seed. We have eternal life, a living hope. What do we do about it? We walk in love. We crave the word so that we grow to become more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel of Jesus the message that never expires, never grows old. Lord, if we've grown cold to that message, will you soften our hearts and revive our hearts that we would taste afresh your kindness this morning, that we would be reminded that we've been born again. We've been redeemed from our futile ways. We are not the same people we once were. And though we still struggle Help us to walk in love. Help us at Riverstone to be known by our love. Help us to walk in the light with each other, confessing our sins, because we know Jesus forgives and we love each other. Lord, we ask your mercy and your grace upon us this week, that this week we would crave your word and we would walk in love because we have tasted your kindness. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Lord be with you all this week. Thank you.